Well, thank you all for being here today. Today, um, given the fact that the theologians were going to be gone on vacation, I guess theologians can do that on Sunday, um, we thought we might use this class as a a chance to get some feedback back. Um, I wasn't here last week, and maybe that there was a lot of Q&A last week, but but one of the things that I've I've gathered and heard is... um, is, is it, hopefully this, this class has made people think about things and it's been difficult because of how hard we've been trying to lay a foundation to find time to, to, to hear the tide of, of response come back and to hear what this class has been making you start to think and so today's class, the whole purpose of today's class is to let you do the talking and the, and the asking of questions so that Starting next week, um, we can steer the class in directions that that you find useful, interesting, productive, um, better, good, whatever word you want to put in that blank, if that makes sense. So this is a class participation day, just to put it kind of of, uh, in in my language, professor language. Um, And to that end... um, a couple of you have been asked ahead of time to, to think about some things you might want to say. Sally very graciously agreed um, to, to tell, to begin answering the two big questions we want to think about today. And I put a shorthand version of them on the board. The first question we're interested in, in hearing about is how has being in this class the last few Sundays affected the way you read Scripture? How has it affected the way you read Scripture? That's an important question for most of us in this tradition. What's been helpful? What questions have been raised as you read? That's, that's the first question. And the second one, which is probably even more important, is the so what question. It's uh, technically application. Reading Scripture is one thing. Living Scripture is another thing. And so that's the other thing that we're, we're concerned about. If, if this study has been helpful to you as a reader, then to what extent has it affected you as an actor in the world? And I use that word actor sort of as an allusion to the title for this class, the dramatic logic of Scripture. How have you begun to think about living out acting out, so to speak, in light of what you understand in Scripture. Is it, is it an already thing, or is it a not yet thing, or is it a I'm not sure what to do next thing? That's what we want to talk about today. Fortunately, since I'm not one of the theologians, I don't have to answer any questions. I just need to make sure they hear them, and um, um, that gets me off the hook a little bit. But that's what we want to do today. So without further ado, I'm going to let Sally, I, I think she's going to start by answering this first question and part of the second question. Sally, I'll turn it over. Um, this fall, um, Nancy Posey, Janine Adams, and Jennifer Saunders and I had the pleasure of uh, leading the Wednesday Night Ladies class. When we decided on things this summer, we thought, let's look at women in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, and see what what messages we think are there for us today, for these women who lived so long ago that God felt important that we, we know about. 
And I told Matt when we looked at Eve, we looked at Eve and Adam, man and wife, and also as male and female. And as many times as I've read that story of creation, I had always looked at the work, the vocation, which um, Lauren especially talks about a lot, as, as it was after the fall, when there were thorns in the garden and there was pain and childbirth and, and life was difficult. But with this class and with that study, I realized, okay, they had assignments before the fall. And they had to look after that garden. They wasn't as difficult without the thorns and weeds. Randall could attest to that, I'm sure. But they still had things to do. Randall will have a job in the world. Amen. It opened up the question of all the different phases of life. Our Wednesday night class has young mothers in there. They have people my age in there and all in between. And when you're a young single person, what's what's the purpose for you? You're the in, made in the image of God. So what's your purpose there? Um, a young adult, middle-aged, Hopefully, in our in retirement now, it concerns us sometimes that our grandchildren have never seen us in our, our heavy work mode. As a matter of fact, a, a rite of passage in our household is before you go to college, you have to have a little session with us and let us kind of explain how long and how hard we worked. We didn't always have the option to go play golf a couple of times a week, that there were. But then we also point out to them, just because we're not working all day every day doesn't mean we have no responsibilities and no purpose. And so I think this class has truly helped with that. Well, sorry, that that's a, to me, that's a perfect answer for those questions. On the one hand, you said that going back and rereading the stories about Eve and Adam in the garden, one of the things you've seen is before the fall, there were things to do. There were, there were, um, they were partners with God and caring for a world that was created good. Not yet perfect, but, but good. And then you also refer to the application. So what? In, in our lives, and I'm, I'm going to push it a little bit, but I think this is where you were going. You can always disagree with me if you want. It's, it's often easy for us to think that what the work we face in the world, especially the changing diapers work, the pulling weeds work, the difficult work, we, we often interpret as that's the result of the fall. Work is, is, is how we're paying back for breaking God's command. But, but what you suggest is that that's maybe not the best way to think about work, or we'll use the word vocation, yes. what we're called to do. And you said it, it makes you think about what your work is now, not the kind of unpleasant punishment work, but the real work. What's your job now in the context of the little garden we'll call your family? What's your job as grandparents who have retired from the work world 
but still have a responsibility to help your grandchildren understand work from a Christian <coughs> perspective. Not only how hard it is, but how valuable it how is. How valuable, how important, and, and that it means more to others as well as to you. Um, you know, we pointed out some of the volunteer work we do. We do that because we're wanting to bring glory to God in serving other people. Just, now, for the sake of this class, to me, that's a that's a great answer because it, she answered both questions, right? She scores lots of brownie points for me as a professor. Um, but I don't want that to intimidate you. She had a little bit of forewarning that she might be called on, so she got But that's those are the kinds of comments that that we hope that today's session can elicit from you. Uh, you don't have to answer both of them. And you don't have to give me answers. One of my mantras as a professor is that I find really good questions far more interesting than answers. Yeah, especially answers from 18-year-olds. You have to take those with a lot of salt. <laughs> but questions are also really valuable. If, if, this, if the experience of being in this room has, has raised some big questions for you, uh, please don't be afraid to to let us know what those are because that's what studying scripture really is all about is trying to figure out what's true and how to live afterwards does that make sense okay so sally's had her turn has anybody else let's take the first question first has being in this class affected how you read scripture in any way david well I actually read that how I read, how Past I read, tense. Um, because in going through this class, it has made me realize that if you if you use the the quadrilateral, I had not gone full circle. I had kind of I had scripture, I would read scripture, and I would let it apply to everything except for the reinterpretation. To make me realize that the scripture is actually alive. Um, growing up, we would—I was told that the scripture was alive, but it would always stagnate with me in the sense of I would kind of get stuck in the experience world of how it was, how my life, and I would always want to go back to well, that explains why I experienced that was the, because of that scripture. But what this class has has encouraged me to realize is that. I can still learn things and relearn things with what I have read. The, the scripture is not stagnant. And so I guess, you know, for me, how I read it, I read it as if it was a very flat thing. Um, and now I'm seeing that it is something that I can read more times. And it's not just a book to read, that it is actually some, uh, a way to live through life. You mentioned the quadrilateral, that handout with the squares. Most of you probably got that. Was that useful yes. Yes. as a handout? And I, I really like what David said. I'm, again, I'm going to reinterpret. I like what you said about realizing that Scripture's alive. There are other words we might use there, but they all sort of mean the same thing. Dynamic might be another one. I use the words, you said stagnant, which is a good word. I put static, too. And it doesn't really matter which of those terms works for you, but to me this, this sounds like it's, it's a positive thing. Do you find it, um, does it give you confidence 
to realize that it's dynamic or does it create fear or both? I would say both, but one of the things that we talked about early on was the fact that I think it was Lauren that used a quote from C.S. Lewis uh, that it's not, it's not exactly a play, but that we're still called into the, the story. And I think that that static or stagnant is you think the play has been written and that you have no part to play. Whereas when it's alive, you can see how you can play a part in the story. And you can see how you are being asked, not just how you can, but how you're asked to play a part in the story. And I think that's how I see scripture as alive, is, is the fact that it's not just something for me to be an observer to, it's something to be, be involved in. And so when, for example, this morning we were, when we were reading about the story of Acts, it's not just, well, what does that mean for my life now in the sense of, well, these are three lessons to learn, and so how do I apply those three lessons? But put myself in those shoes of, is there someone who in my life I need to realize I am being closed off to because they are a different color, a different race, or a different culture? And so I, I think that that is, for me, that's how I see alive is that it is a story, and I'm... I'm I'm asking a part of it. It's not just something that for me to observe. In other words, instead of the Bible being a closed set of stories that you just read, it, it's a, it's a. I hate to push the dramatic analogy yeah. too far, but it, but it's a script. Yeah. That has been played by other people. That you realize now you're you're being asked to perform because the play's going on still, and okay. Man, I, yeah, I guess feel the contrarian. Scripture is static. It hasn't changed in all these years. Society changes. And so the way we look at Scripture, the things that become important or less more important or less important changes as society changes. You know, and I can just, you know, and it's, just, it's changing more rapidly. So in my lifetime, I've seen, you know, doctrine used to, to be the utmost thing. Doctrine doesn't mean squat. Nobody cares about doctrine. Don't tell Josh. We won't tell but, but again, I mean, that's the world we live in. And it has, the scripture hasn't changed, but we've changed. And, and, you know, and it's not that, you know, I, I hear people say, well, you know, you're just going with society. No, we were going with society in the 50s. But society's changed, and we've changed the way we look at scripture. But the scripture itself is static. It's, it's our interpretation, it's our look, it's our take that evolves and devolves and changes. Well, let me, let me, since you like to be contrarian, I'll be a little contrarian back, but I think we're on the same page. It's okay for a while. I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> there you go. Um, because I'm the, the oldest guy left in the English department at Lipscomb, and the other guys who teach Shakespeare retired. It's, it's now my job to teach Shakespeare, which I'm, I'm really enjoying, but it's not my specialty. Shakespeare is especially all by itself, so I'm learning a lot. But one of the things I've learned is that in teaching Shakespeare, and what I try to teach my students, is that, to follow up with, with what you said, the script is static, right? What Shakespeare wrote, more or less, is the same as it was a couple of two, three, four hundred years ago. But that's not the thing. As Shakespeare most famously said, you know, the, the play is the thing. And every time you, you see a Shakespeare play, the actors have changed. 
400 years of actors have, have played those roles. They look different, they sound different, they move different, they look different. And the audience has changed over 400 years. How they hear those words, how they understand those ideas, how they understand what those words and ideas say about what they understand in their world changes. It, it's not that it gets better or gets worse, but it, it the text is static, but the play, the, the, the dramatic logic, so to speak, changes in some ways. And, and that's the difficulty we have of, of trying to navigate in, in our world on our stage with the people we're playing through the scriptures with. I think I, I, would, agree, I would agree with you and, and maybe perhaps a too literary way, but that, that raises some interesting points about the nature of scripture. So what do I do with the active nature of the word of God? Oh, great question. Sharper than, to the heart. I mean, uh, these, was, these were written for you, the New Testament says about the Old Testament. <coughs> What do I do with, um, I'm reading in Jeremiah, which is not my favorite book, but he says, you didn't listen. I've called to you, I've sent prophets to you, I wrote the words for you, and you don't listen. So what do we do with the active nature? This is a great question, the active nature of, of Scripture. Yeah. Yeah, so what, let me ask, let me ask you this question. So, are you suggesting that, that God might speak to you today through Scripture in some way? Or, are you suggesting that God might be speaking to you in ways that asked you to look at Scripture differently than you did? So here's what I think. I think Scripture's self-testimony is God speaks through it to the reader. Okay. And that there is an active nature, and if you don't listen, there's a danger. There's an active nature to Scripture, an active yeah. agency. It, it, it's living. And we said that. This is the reason I magnifying glass and take it on to a verse and even on a word try to find the meaning of that in relation to life today without taking in consideration the overall look this week we had a view from space of a storm and from the space capsule you could see how it's affecting the Florida coast if you were down there in it you could get no no indication of the, of the vastness of the storm. There's an old gospel uh, 
music uh, song by the Cathedral Quartet which says, I've read the back of the book and I know how it ends. And if you don't, keep in mind the story that this is the unfolding revelation of God about the story of mankind, birth, fall, the process of reconnecting to Jesus. Regardless of whether you take the seven days as literal or not, or what is this hyperbole or not, if you don't keep in mind the overall, you can lose focus at times for what this might mean about getting to where we want to go. And that is this might be a little bit tangential, but that's a really great analogy. Those space pictures of a hurricane, especially of a big hurricane, are beautiful pictures. Right? Yeah. You're, down, you're in that. If you're in that storm right now, you know you, your daughter's getting ready to have a life-changing event with two babies at once. You are too. It looks like chaos yeah. down here. Well, up here, it's it's it's, a, it's beautiful. It looks designed. It's same storm, but depending on where you are in there, that's, it can look very different. I want to pick up a little bit on Patra's point, because that's one I, I deal with a lot in my classes. When we use the word story, right, it can mean a, a wide range of different things. Sometimes, when we talk about story, well, that's just a story, when we say it that way, we mean it's just something that you made up. It's a, it's a pure fiction. We have a more technical term, narrative, but that also sometimes is a story that's, that's really made up. But it's important, I, what Patrick brings up, it's really important sometimes to understand or to clarify what we mean when we say story, because it, it can be misunderstood. You've heard people say probably, so are you saying that Genesis is just a story? Well, what they mean is, not true? An answer would be it's absolutely a story because it's a it's a, an account of something that happens and then something that happens next because of what happened before and then something else happens because of what happens. Story is just how humans make sense of the world. Story is just what people it's what humans do. Whether they're Christians or not, story is how we figure out what's true. We, we tell stories. And, it, and what Patcher brings up is a really important point about the degree to which a story is both constructed by humans, we make them up, but it's also how we try to tell the truth to each other about the most important things. We, we tell stories. We get four Gospels, each telling the story of Jesus. And they're not exactly the same story, but they're the same story. Does that make sense? So Patrick brings up a really good point about how complex <coughs> scripture, scripture can be sometimes. Okay. I think for me, like, one of the things that I've been wrestling with um, when you, when you grow up in a tradition where a literal interpretation of the Bible is the tradition, it's almost like there's some bedrock that you lay there. Um, and when you start to question that, you start to unlearn some things. 
And one of the questions for me is like, how how far does the unlearning need to go? Um, and that's very unsettling. And so I think the question is, when you start to mess with that foundation, uh, what what foundation do you put back in its place? Um, because it, all of this makes a lot of sense, and it's incredibly exciting, um, and it's fun to learn. But then, like when you start to kind of digest that more, I think it's for me at least it's more apprehension around. Okay, well, how do you how do you replace that foundation? Because because literal interpretation was such a foundation. <coughs> from a traditional standpoint for, for so much of people's lives. Certainly in the tradition I grew up in, the Church of Christ, yeah. that's true of just about every evangelical tradition. Yeah. And in terms of Christian history, it's, it's, it is everybody's question. <coughs> and I like the way you put that. How far should we, can we unlearn the way we used to read? Because yeah. it is a, a very destable, it's, it, it's not comfortable. Right, it's like it's that moment in my classes when I show students that if you want to hold in your hand the, the oldest Hebrew version of Genesis in your hand that's complete, it's going to be about a thousand years old. Here's a clay tablet dug up in the 1850s in Iraq that's about 2,000 years old that represents a story that's probably an extra 1,500 years old and it's the flood story with some changes and most of my students grow up thinking that the Bible's the oldest book around because Adam wrote it <laughs> it's the oldest book and that's why it's the truest book but when they have to juggle those two facts, it's destabilizing to them. You can see it in their faces. They stay, they, they, they wait. Something's older than the Bible? That, because the, the automatic reaction, at least from 18 year old, years old, is then I can't believe anything. And if you remember being 18, that's the way we tend to be. Because we like black and white worlds when we're 18. Unless it applies to us, we like black and white worlds. But that, that destabilizing of, of how we read is, is difficult to manage. I think it goes back to what David mentioned. That's, that's one way, to me at least, Scripture is active. The more I understand about what's, as George said, static, the text, there are other things that make me have to rethink what that means and where I always put my trust and how I understand it. That's a really good way to, to put it. Somebody else right beside you had a question there. That's a really great question that you never ask until you're you got a couple of kids and they go to Sunday school or go to public school. And that's because we'd like something nice and simple and black and white to tell them. Right? <laughs> 
great capacity for imagination and for, you know, it's, it's children are black and white, but they also have a wonderful capacity for being more complex and Oh, just watch their pictures, right? Draw a picture of mom or dad. They're not trying to get the proportions right. right? Are the colors necessarily? It's, they're representing something else. Way in the back. I am the artist who <laughs> Put them up there. It's not either or. I put verses up there, and I, and I think what both of you illustrated is it's not an either or situation. It's it's a it's a tension. Does that make sense? There, because while on the one hand it may frighten you that maybe I can't explain exactly what this scripture means now, for another person that might feel exactly the opposite. That, oh, I don't have to try to believe that anymore because I understand it differently. That, but there's a tension there. And for somebody who finds it liberating, this is still a difficult question. How? Yeah, and, and most of us do feel pulled. I mean, that, that, but that tension is also part of what goes back to making Scripture alive in us. It's not stuck in one place. It's we we should we just do feel the pull here and there. We'll go to the front first and then back. Um, I'm gonna, is there a good question? Yeah. Sure. So hi. 
Um, I have had, I'm sure many of us have had a destabilizing period where you're faced with a process of something and then I remember saying to my parents, I just wish somebody would tell me what we know for sure. And um, Just tell me the answer. And we, and we what, didn't know. What I know for sure. And I think as far as how, how far do we unlearn, to me it's been as much as, as much as is necessary so that all that's left is that I know that God is good. And if, no matter how many traditions that is, how much dogma and doctrine, if it all goes away until all I know is that God is good. And that is a freak out thing when you abandon all of it, when that has been what your identity as a Christian has been is, well, this is what we do, da 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 But then liberating, when I go... I'm not going to heaven because I interpret scripture perfectly. And none of us are. And if you think that's required, then all of a sudden perfect interpretation of scripture is more important than the sacrifice of Christ. And so that frees me up to not worry about things I don't understand or how someone else is understanding it because I'm banking my whole eternity on what I know that God is good and His Son saves me, and that is it. Amen. And I can't, I can't, I, like I, I don't have lots of letters or any letters after my name. I don't have lots of, you know, technical skills or theological training. But it is, a, it is a scary moment to peel away and to say, "This is the rock I'm standing on, and all it is is that God is good." That's good. And that's, that's it. Good. That's good. Now, I'm, you're next. While he's making his comment or, or asking his question or, or whatever, what I'd like to do before I forget is to, is, is to ask you to think about questions that if Josh or Lauren were up here, you'd want to ask them. We could just make a list and feed it to them. So be thinking about questions. You don't have to defend the question, but if you've got questions, be thinking about that. Okay, now. Question really an old one. Okay. Apostle um, Paul's coming here. How far should I have to unlearn this stuff? And what, what should be my bedrock? And Jesus told the Pharisees, you search the scriptures diligently and point to me and you miss them. He also said, he never gives a cup of cold water in my name and he's on the team. So I take all that and, and say, okay, what, what's the bedrock? Some of the perspective for the same, some of them weren't the same. So I, I just try to decide what of the other stuff that's out there is important to me in light of the gospel, and I'll just make my own personal decisions on that. I think that links with what Dixie said. It, it, it actually supports that. And it links with that aliveness. If you think about the, our, you know, our, our classic <laughs> old, or sorry, New Testament figures like Paul, who had to unlearn a great deal of what he knew for sure to be certain. And many of whose letters are about unlearning, you know. What does it mean that the Gentiles are invited to the kingdom? It means we have to unlearn what we thought we knew about who's in and who's out. 
Or Peter, we had the example today of Cornelius had to unlearn. So there's a lot of unlearning that goes on. Moses, I'm thinking, you know, thought he learned. He didn't want to be Pharaoh. He didn't want to lead the people. And guess what? God calls him and he's got to unlearn a lot of things. So I, I think that, that ties in to this here. That That's another way the scripture for every individual is alive and dynamic. We're in the constant process of, of feeling that tension, which I would call education, right? Of, of, of trying to figure out and separate what we thought we knew from what we ought to know, and it's 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 a dynamic process. At least for those, I think, for healthy people, it's a it's a discomfort that's a sign of life. Although we'd rather not be uncomfortable sometimes. Right? It can be liberating, but it also can be destabilizing. You, you can, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a mixed blessing. Somebody, <coughs> were you going to say something, Mary? <laughs> About 30 minutes. Okay. <laughs> hey, hey, Matt, sorry. can I be your peripheral vision as well? There's been oh, okay. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Because you're... I have to ride home with her, so I have to make sure yeah. you're good. Okay. I just, back to what you mentioned about Shakespeare, I was glad you brought it up because that's what I always want to bring up. One of the things I've realized in my study, I guess just recently, is I've missed kind of the middle. Uh, I've always read the story, you know, the narrative of the Bible as if it were being transcribed as it happened. And I'm beginning, just, just like with Shakespeare, but, you know, the reason that Julius Caesar was wearing a doublet is he's writing it for Elizabethan audience. And you know, when I teach rhetorical analysis, I say, who's writing and to whom? And for me to think about why God wanted this particular thing recorded and who wrote it down and who heard it first helps me to realize it was, you know, there's what the, the story of the, the actual setting of the narrative and then there's actually the setting when it was read for the first time. Who was the original audience? And that makes it easy for me to see it's already alive in two different places. And then I can extend that to, okay, why, what about now? Well, uh, you know, another way of thinking about Scripture is that the process of not just writing down that story for the first time, but of, of recopying that story with these other stories going to get back out of the temple and read and, and continuing to read that story is, is, a, is an active living process yeah, but, but, but it's like Shakespeare's play we're going to do Hamlet again this year mm-hmm. but it's going to be different than it was 200 years ago but it's going to be Hamlet so how, how do we navigate in other words it's we don't have to wear doublets anymore but if we wear tutus some people are going to worry here's a great example here's a great example a couple of years ago, Lipscomb's drama department decided to do a version of Shakespeare's play Richard II. Right? And they were going to do it with an all-female cast. Right? And immediately, I got phone calls from people saying, is Lipscomb trying to make some kind of a feminist statement? Why are they doing all women? And I said, well, you know, when Shakespeare did the play, it was all men. Oh. Was Shakespeare trying to make some statement about, <laughs> well, no, it's, you know, it's just a different world. And sometimes this is one of those liberating and destabilizing moments, right? We, given how we've come to think things have been interpreted, we forget that there, it's always been interpreted. And sometimes, you know, like that example, almost everybody goes, oh, 
oh, I get it. I was worried about something that I don't really need to worry about. Does that make sense? But that's that's a really good point. I, yeah, go ahead. If we go back to my original comment on Adam and Eve on this destabilizing type concept in the garden when we studied in that class, they were neither uh, superior nor inferior to each other. They were equal. We've gone through history for thousands of years where it was turned because of the fall. Then we get to the New Testament and we see Jesus bringing women in where they had never been allowed. We see, we see statements of there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. This, this superior, inferior, well, that's destabilizing. And it's been, it's been difficult. And yet in this church, I mean, I've been in churches where a woman could not speak, but with the altos, please sing up. <laughs> um, and don't forget the potluck after. Yes, you know. yes. Whereas here, half, half of the women who speak, you know, half the women speakers today, half the speakers have been women. So, so a destabilizing thing that I'm sure bothered some people, but now we've, we've read through the whole story. That makes me think of a question, but I'm not going to ask you again, because you had a question. I, I just was going to make the comment, just kind of bringing all of it together with the idea that God is good and that eternal perspective and that idea of the bird's eye versus <laughs> like the very specific, the question that you've written up about so what an application is, when we kind of have that eternal perspective and have that idea that we're part of the drama, it allows us to give more grace and mercy to the other actors because sometimes God's refining things within us to help us become the person he designed us to be and there are other actors and rather than approaching it that this is a conflict no perhaps this is just a person that's entered into your story to bring out the things that you need to be unveiled so so or so these shackles can come off so the veil can be lifted and maybe if we could go throughout our week of looking at that's okay. We don't have to take things as personally, and we don't have to make it about that person, but rather, okay, what could God be trying in this? Uh, when I'm triggered by this thing, how could I be looking at it as this is God helping us in this story as we're all actively interacting with one another in, in that way? That's a good point. That's a good point. Somebody else had a hand on it. You didn't, yeah. A question for the theologians, perhaps. Josh, listen up. Here's a question. Now, what is Satan's role? in our interpretation. Oh, that's a great question. My brother and I wrestled with that as we've come 180 kind of from our parents. And we're like, what if Satan is twisting our brains? So I'll quit right there. But, that's a, but that is a great question. I mean, what is Satan's role? If we're going to talk about the dramatic logic of Scripture and our role. How we understand it now as opposed to how we were brought up. Well, that's a great question. I'm not even going to try to answer that one. But you know what, man? I'm going to. Okay. How? Right. But I'll tell you why. Because for the past five years, I've been destabilizing all of my theology. Okay. And what I've discovered when all is said and done is, is I've given away my certainty for the chance to live in faith. 
Yeah. Faith always feels like you're dangling and you're just a little past what you're supposed to be. It is one of the most gutsy things for anybody to do, to live by faith, because you know you could be wrong, but you believe so much in the story you've chosen to invest yourself that you're willing to go ahead and suffer the consequences. And only time will let you know whether or not you were right or wrong. But at some point, even that question no longer matters because that's what faith does. It makes you nervous. Okay. Thanks, Hilton. This is, this is another way of phrasing that tension, I think, that might ring truer with some of us. The tension between wanting to know for sure and knowing we could be completely wrong. That's good. So Josh, I hope you got some things to, to think about. Thank you all for participating today. Um, and I hope most of you come back next week. I hope all of you come back. <laughs> <laughs>